Hallelujah. Do you know what that word means? Hallelujah. It is the English spelling of a Hebrew word, Halle, which means praise, and Yah, which is short, short and abbreviated way of saying Yahweh. So, Hallelujah. Praise Yah. Praise Yahweh. Or if you wanted to put it in more simple English, what you're used to hearing in your Bibles, praise the Lord, the personal name of God, Yahweh. So, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. My hope for the next few minutes of our time together in Matthew's Gospel. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 26, where I will read to you what I read to you last week. Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. My aim is that through this reading of God's Word and discussion of its meaning, we will conclude this teaching time with Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Follow along as I read God's word to you. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given him them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? That it must be so. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Last week as I read this text, I tried to encourage you that in one big idea, Jesus is being misunderstood by various people in this passage. And therefore, there are several things that he is not. He is not a revolutionary that uses violence to overthrow the Roman government, whether as a Jewish nationalist or some other kind of violent revolutionary. And Jesus is not some unwilling, innocent son being punished by his father. He is a willing participant. He is in control with what's going on, and he is allowing it all to happen because he has submitted himself to the Father's will. That was last week, and I had made mention of two of the passages in this text, but I did not explain them to you. And since I'm in no rush 
to finish the gospel according to Matthew, let's make sure you fully appreciate all that Jesus has said in this text. So round two of the arrest and betrayal of Jesus. We're going to look specifically at two verses, and that should take up all of our time and maybe even then some. Look at verse 54, when Jesus is talking about the sword being put away back in its place. In verse 54, he says, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? It must be so. It's a rhetorical kind of question. These things need to happen. Why do they need to happen? So that the scriptures would be fulfilled or drop your eyes down to verse 56. But all of this has taken place. That the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. A bit of a repetition there. Jesus apparently wants us and his disciples to know that what is happening in this story is the fulfillment of the scriptures So, let's think about that. Let's look at verse 56. Let's work through just verse 56, the language there from Jesus' words, as our outline, our big idea. All this has come to pass. All of this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. One verse, lots of content to unpack. First, all of this has come to pass. All of what has come? come to pass. Well, enemies are pursuing Jesus. They have been for quite some time. They want him dead. One of those enemies is one of his closest friends who betrays him with a kiss, and then he gets arrested. And he does all of that like a, sl- like a sheep led to the slaughter, remaining silent, wanting this plan to come to fruition. In other words, all of this is not really great stuff, which begs the question, is God still in control? Has the sovereign father of the universe lost control of his son and the events surrounding him? Or is God only in control in certain moments? What about the bad things that happen in your life? All of this has taken place so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. All of the things that just happened to Jesus, he is saying, this was part of the plan. But some people struggle with that, especially when bad things are happening. This is part of the plan? How could God allow this, and then you fill in the blank with your this from yesterday, or last week, or last year, or all of 2020? All of this is a part of your plan, God? How could you allow something so terrible happen? And Jesus says it twice. All of this was to fulfill the plan of God written down. Not the secret plan of God, but the revealed plan of God in Scripture. Enemies pursuing People plotting to murder, a close friend betraying, an arrest of somebody who did nothing wrong. Injustice is happening. And Jesus is saying that all of this evil is coming to pass according to the foreknowledge and plan of the sovereign God. Humans are doing actions 
that are clearly meant for evil. Surely, we must say that these human decisions and actions are not part of the plan of God. Surely, right? This is the logic and the teaching of many Christians, many professing Christians want to say, no, God does not have any part to play in sinful humans using their free will to make choices. And humanly speaking, these events in Matthew chapter 26 are in fact the plan of humans. That's not a doubt. Look at your Bible, Matthew 26 verses 3 and 4. How did the chapter begin? It tells us that everything that is about to unfold with the arrest, betrayal, and death of Jesus was part of the plotting and scheming and plans of a certain set of religious leaders and officials. Verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. There's no doubt about it. There is a plan. There is a human plan. That human plan is by specific leaders by name, Jewish officials, Jewish rulers. They made a plan and they had a specific plan to make sure that they could kill Jesus and arrest him and do it in a stealth manner. Do you see the evil plan of men in Matthew 26? and the evil actions of men in Matthew 26. Yes, we do. And so in the very same chapter, in the passage that I just read to you, Jesus twice says that these evil plans are fulfilling God's revealed plan in the scriptures. And many people want to say, all right, so which is it? Is it free will or is it the sovereignty of God? Is it our doing or is it God's doing? How do we reconcile what seems to be two things that are at odds with each other? Did God do this or did Judas do this? Was this God's sovereign will or was this Judas's will? And the answer should be, of course, yes. There are two different realities that are being explained very clearly, and this is just one of hundreds of instances that this is just the way the Bible talks. It's the way the Bible talks all over the place. And here is just another evidence of it. So, as a way of application for each of us on this idea that all of this has taken place, all of it, not just one little thing, oh, God kind of came in at this moment for that act of betrayal. Just that. No, Jesus says all of this that's going on right now is fulfilling the sovereign plan of God. So two guardrails that I would encourage you to maintain in your understanding about God and the Bible. Imagine you're on a highway to heaven. You're journeying as a pilgrim and you don't want to fall off into the ditch one way or the other. You want to stay on the path. And so guardrail number one, God is sovereign. He is in control. Guardrail number two, human beings make real choices, and you are accountable for those choices. Guardrail number one, God's in control. He is sovereign. Guardrail number two, humans make real choices, and you will be accountable for those choices. So what happens if we lose guardrail number one, and God is not the sovereign God of the universe? Then you lose the power, the plan, and the purposes of God. You lose the power of God. I can't do anything. 
those humans, they made the choice. You lose the plans of God and the purposes. This ditch we could call the ditch of humanism. Humanism is the kind of thinking that God may exist. Most of the time in humanism, he does not exist. But even if he did exist, he definitely is not involved. We are left to ourselves. He got the earth started like a clockmaker, got the watch started, and then said, there you go, have at it, universe. We're left to ourselves, and the God that made us is not concerned with our daily affairs. Maybe he hears a prayer every once in a while, and maybe, maybe, he might get involved with a few big things. But your day-to-day, moment-by-moment, hour-to-hour living is not on the mind of God. He has bigger things to take care of. So when COVID-19 comes, we need to solve this. When cancer strikes, your mom dies, your marriage is falling apart, you're struggling with things at work, the person that you voted on was not elected, and on and on you could go. All of this is really just a bunch of human decisions and actions, and there's really nothing else. This view of the world means that if you are metaphorically riding in a boat and you've got Jesus with you by faith, and a giant storm comes, there is nothing that he is going to do to calm the storm. The winds and the waves will not obey him because it is what it is. Humanism means that if your brother or close friend named Lazarus dies, you will never see him again. It's over. Death is death. And there is no defeating it, and there is no God who says, Lazarus, come forth. There is no resurrection from the dead. And I tell you as a pastor of you church members, if we lose the sovereignty of God and we have no guardrail keeping us off into the ditch of humanism, then you and I lose one of the most important things we can offer each other when we're suffering and struggling. So don't fall off into the ditch of humanism. (laughs) Maintain your faith and your trust in the sovereign God. On the other hand, Maintain your understanding that humans are responsible. If you fall off into the ditch the other way, then you start to blame God for everything. Nothing's your fault. You're just a robot. This ditch we could call fatalism. What's the point? God's going to do what God's going to do. If he's sovereign over everything, why does it matter if I pray? Why does it matter if I share the gospel with anybody and tell anyone about Jesus? God's predestined who are his chosen. So I don't need to share the gospel with anyone. He'll save who he saves. In other words, there's nothing we can do about it. This is the mindset of the fatalists. And here at Embassy Church, we have agreed upon a statement of faith that includes both guardrails. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Article number eight on the doctrine of God's grace, our church has covenanted together to say this is what we believe will be necessary for us to do church life together. And it says this, in God's eternal purpose, he chose a people for his own possession before the foundation of the world. He predestined them not based on any good deeds that they would do. Rather, he adopted them through Jesus Christ for himself according to his favor and will. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. 
If he did not choose me, I would never have chosen him. If he did not love me first, I would never love him now. Why are you here today if it wasn't for the sovereign initiative of God to chase you, pursue you, and send someone to tell you about Jesus? But our statement of faith does not end there. It says God's electing grace does not diminish accountability before God or personal responsibility to believe in Jesus Christ. Instead, this grace, this is my favorite part of the statement. Instead, God's grace should extinguish all boasting, grant us assurance of salvation, cultivate humility, promote love, encourage prayer, and yes, fuel evangelism. Fuel evangelism, not fatalistically, well, God's going to save them anyway, but instead, because he has chosen people, you have confidence he will save people. There are those that don't know Christ yet, and you don't know who they are, but he does. So go out and tell everyone you can about Jesus. Do you believe this? You're supposed to if you're a member of this church. Is this the way you think about the world, my friend? I am convinced each of us throughout the journey of our lives will be prone to veer off into one of these ditches at different seasons of our life. Some of you, because of your personality, your upbringing, or whatever, you will be influenced by the secular, scientific, materialistic world we live in that you need to regularly remind yourself, oh yeah, God is sovereign. And he is, in fact, intimately involved with every hour of my day. Where others of us may be struggling with, well, I know he's sovereign, but now it's his fault that I did this. It's his fault that I'm stuck in this situation, and I'm upset with him. And we shake our fists at God for his sovereignty. And I want to be aware, this is hard. This is difficult. These are not easy pastoral conversations for me to have. And so, as a community of faith, let's share with one another our struggles. We need loving relationships where we can honestly say, I'm struggling to believe that. And that we don't get quickly rebuked as in, well, you heard the sermon. Repent! Let's listen and love gently steering one another back into the biblical direction of the highway to heaven and the journey of faith. And with that, we should understand that all that has taken place in your life and in the life of this passage of Scripture with Jesus is part of the plan of God. That's the first little comment I wanted to make. All that has taken place is a fulfillment of the plan of God and the revealed will of the Scriptures. But we're not done our passage. That would be a good sermon. I think we could finish it there, but there's more. And this is the part that I knew I couldn't handle last week. And so let's finish the verse. So that there would be fulfillment of the scriptures of the prophets. Let's start with the explanation about the scriptures. The what? The scriptures. Notice that neither Jesus nor Matthew are saying that these events are fulfilling one scripture, singular. Because if you've read Matthew's gospel and you've been reading for 26 chapters, you would have seen that he says this kind of thing a lot. In fulfillment of the scripture, singular. And then they quote the scripture. But read our passage. Look over it again. Do you see a quotation from an Old Testament scripture anywhere? No, you do not. 
do you see some sort of allusion to a specific Old Testament scripture? And this is the part that needs a little bit of explanation. What scriptures does Jesus have in mind? Perhaps he has in mind what was read for us earlier in the service. Psalm 41.9, hear these words again. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, whom I ate bread with, has lifted his heel against me. That might fit. Maybe it's Psalm 55, verses 20 and 21. My companion has stretched out his hand against his friends. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smooth like butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn with a sword. That could fit. Scriptures. Bible teachers, scholars, commentaries aren't really unified necessarily on which scriptures Jesus might be fulfilled in this specific instance. And so perhaps it might be better for us to see the broader theme of suffering and through the the way of suffering, God vindicates his leader and leads them to enthronement and glory. This might correspond with what Paul says in Acts chapter 17, that there's just broader themes in the scriptures. Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3, Paul, as was his custom on the Sabbath day, was reasoning from the scriptures, plural, and explaining to those in the synagogues, proving to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead and saying that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. What did the early Christians do? They took the Old Testament, which was the scriptures. They reasoned from the scriptures and said, look, if you read this carefully, it's got to be Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Paul says a similar thing in Acts 26. Another similar instance is in 1 Corinthians 15, if this is a familiar passage. For I delivered to you what was of first importance, what I also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That then he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. It seems like if we read our Bibles carefully enough, that the first two-thirds are kind of important. That you might want to get familiar with them. That in order to really understand Jesus, you need to understand the whole story prior to his arrival. In fact, you really can't even make sense of Matthew 26 and 27, the passage that we have found ourselves without having a familiarity with the scriptures. Matthew, as he writes this, is assuming that you know the scriptures well. Look in your Bibles, Matthew 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. For it is written in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And you're just supposed to know, oh yeah, Zechariah, that prophecy had about a suffering shepherd who would get struck and through that suffering, God would lead about the return from exile. Oh yeah. Or Matthew 26, verse 38. We had seen earlier that when Jesus was praying, he said, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And that phrase, my soul is very sorrowful, is almost a direct quote from Psalm 42, verse 5. You're supposed to import all that Psalm 42 is saying and say, Oh, Jesus is identifying himself with that suffering psalmist. Or if you read ahead, look at Matthew chapter 26, 
Look at verses 63 and 64, but Jesus remained silent. And high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting Daniel chapter 7 as he answers the question at his um, court case here, his hearing before those leaders. Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Matthew says that this is a fulfillment of Jeremiah, and as we will see in the coming weeks, this is like a mosaic Take a bunch of scriptures, put them in a blender, and then pour them out, and there you have the quotation that's right here in Matthew 27. So it's a mixture of Zechariah and Jeremiah. That'll be fun. That might have to take its own sermon. I don't know. We'll see. But the point is, there are scriptures being quoted all over the place. Sometimes they're being specifically told, Jeremiah, and then other times you're like, oh, wait, that's actually a quote from Psalms, or that's a quote from Zechariah. And then lastly, look at Matthew 27, verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is a direct word-for-word quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. In other words, if you would like to make sense of just Matthew 26 and 27. There's a lot of scriptures that you should be familiar with because the scriptures are foretelling about one who would come and suffer and die and reveal the plan of God. But in all of these different references that we see in these two chapters and even the Psalms that I quoted earlier, about maybe he's talking about the betrayal of Judas from the Psalms language. The one idea that I'd want to present to you today as to what Jesus has in mind, if I were to take my best educated biblical guess as to what Jesus means when he says that the scriptures of the prophets are being fulfilled in my arrest and betrayal, it would be not just one Bible passage, but a whole series of stories revolving around a man named David. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The very first verse of Matthew's gospel. How does he introduce this book? What is one of the first things he does? Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is declared from the very first verse of Matthew's gospel as the son of David. And then the genealogy that ensues from verse 2 all the way down to verse 17 is a genealogy mostly focused on David to make the point that Jesus is the son of David. And so even before Jesus comes onto the earth, even before he cries his first cry as an infant, before he makes his first action as a human being, Before he does a single thing, the sovereign God has placed Jesus in the family line of David. And then, through a series of events that Luke tells us about regarding a census and other political issues going on, places Jesus in Bethlehem, visited by some magi, and being challenged by a rival king. And because of that, he is exiled out of Israel 
into Egypt, and then back up to Nazareth. If you know the story of David, I want you to think about these parallels. The current presiding king in Jerusalem is jealous and wants to kill a young boy who's been anointed as the one who will take over the throne. So Mary, Joseph, and Jesus in Matthew are running for their lives like David did when King Saul wanted to kill him. But just like David, Jesus returns, and he returns to Jerusalem so that he can be enthroned as the king. And just like when David became the king, Jesus would have to suffer because the enthroned David would have betrayal. And if you read 2 Samuel chapters 15 to 18, there is a gripping story about the enthroned David in Jerusalem being betrayed by his own son and one of his closest friends. And so I'm convinced that in this broader theme and the very different clues we have that Jesus is saying that this must take place because I am the great-great-grandson of David and not just in the family line but everything that David was I will be but to a heightened extent and more. It is fulfilling the scriptures that the prophets have given and I think that one of the clear examples from the Old Testament that matches the story of Jesus is what we call the revolt of his son Absalom and the betrayal of his good friend Ahithophel. So let me give you, ready? This is to hopefully just for anybody that's struggling and you needs to learn kind of a little quick Bible lesson, quick, quick, quickly, six, I mean quickly, six lessons from these two stories as to why I think Jesus has this on his mind. First, Jesus is moving from Jerusalem across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, and if you read those passages in 2 Samuel, the movements are similar. Second, as Jesus goes up to pray on the Mount of Olives, Matthew is even using the same exact words about David's journey from Jerusalem during the revolt. In other words, in these first two observations, Matthew is setting up Jesus' time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane and the betrayal with the same geographical movements and with the exact same words used in 2 Samuel. I think we're starting off pretty good, but let's move on. Number three, Absalom and Ahithophel conspire against David in the same way that Judas conspires against Jesus. Fourth, David says a prayer to the council of Ahithophel and says, God, would you make this guy who's betraying me, may that council not work out. May it become foolish and then lead to David's enthronement and victory and return to the throne. In a very similar way, the counsel of Judas to the religious leaders was turned to foolishness because it led to Jesus' enthronement and Judas's death. Fifth, and probably the hammer that really puts the last nail in the coffin for me when I was studying this is that Judas hung himself Look at Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, and you will see the clear reference to Judas's suicide. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. If you know the story of 2 Samuel chapter 17, verse 23, Ahithophel, the man who betrayed him, did the exact same thing. And there are only two times in the entire Bible where somebody hangs themselves to death. That's it. And if there's not a connection that God's trying to kind of get our attention with to say, and the scriptures must be fulfilled, not just one scripture, but a whole storyline of David, then I think we're missing out on some of the rich imagery of how the Bible is all coming to fruition in Jesus. And so sixth and finally, in case some of you were like, but wait, it specifically says the prophets. 
And Samuel is a history book, and that's when you just need to realize that Jesus and his friends, when they read Samuel, it was a, a part of a collection of books that they called the prophets. So if you're wondering, like, but he's not Jeremiah, he's not Isaiah, a prophet. Samuel's book was in a collection of books. There's the law, there's the prophets, and then there's the poetry writings. And Samuel is in the prophets. So I think it fits. As we finish out Matthew's gospel, the point of saying all of this is I think we need to see that Jesus is the true king, the better son of David. As it was introduced in the very beginning, now it's coming to fruition in the end. As Jesus is being acted upon, mocked, ridiculed, and treated shamefully, there is in the background of this scene another story going on. It's the whole rich details of the Old Testament stories. Jesus himself is being passive and allowing himself to suffer even though he has all of the authority and the right to rule and reign and the power of all the legions of angels that he could bring down upon these events. He allows himself to be hoisted on a cross because he knows this is the way it must happen. And therefore, in a very strange twist of events, Jesus returns to the throne through this betrayal and he is hoisted on a cross to die and be enthroned with a crown over his thorns and a mocking robe put around his back. Jesus' life begins and ends when it seems like everyone else is in control, as humans are the ones making all the plans and decisions. But unwittingly, they're exalting a Christ and lifting him on the cross that would be his very enthronement as the king of the universe, saving the whole world from sin and bringing about the end of unrighteous, unjust actions. And we praise God. Hallelujah. Jesus is everything. He is our everything. In all of these instances, Jesus is being acted on, but in all of these instances, God, the author of everything, is fulfilling the life of David in a way that just can't be explained by happenstance and coincidence. And so we want to conclude our time this morning thinking about this final word that we have heard, but not quite defined. Fulfillment. The word is play ra'o. Matthew uses this word 16 times in his gospel, and that's quite a bit when you compare the two times Mark does or the nine times Luke does. So in comparison, Matthew seems to be really interested in play ra'o, fulfillment. But what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures? And the definition of this word is to make something full, like spatial fullness. You have a cup, you pour some water in it, and it's starting to fill up, but it's not full yet. There's still space. And to make it full is to get the water all the way to the top of the cup. That's definition number one. Definition number two, complete a period of time. So this is now a temporal metaphor. We might say the time is up. Like a child reaching a certain age and the time's up. You're no longer a child anymore. You're now an adult. The time has been fulfilled. Or lastly, the third definition is to finish or complete something. There was a goal that was to be achieved and that goal was accomplished. It's done. And in many ways, these definitions are not contradictory to each other, but complementary. So consider this. Jesus is filling up the Jewish scriptures. Their story, if it was a metaphor, is like a cup of water. And God is progressively, throughout time, pouring more water into the cup that is called the scriptures. But the cup is not filled to the tippy top until Jesus comes. 
There was space left, and in order for God's promises that he made earlier to come true, they needed to add Jesus on the top. And when he comes, the cup is filled. That water is Jesus. He is the living water, and we drink from that cup when it is filled. Or we could say the time has come. Jesus completes the timing of the story of God. Galatians 4 actually says this explicitly. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so we might receive the adoption as sons. It was the perfect and the right time. Never doubt the timing of God. He has fulfilled the timing of the scriptures He has filled up the scriptures. And lastly, we could say that Jesus is bringing the logical goal, the purpose, the reason why God did everything that he did in the past has now been accomplished in Jesus. All the Old Testament scriptures are being brought to fruition in every which way you slice it by looking at the person of Jesus. Or in other words, the whole Bible, every bit of it, is one unified story about Jesus. So to reference our statement of faith again, in our doctrine on the scriptures, it says that scriptures testify about how God has revealed himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Wednesday night, we just started a new Bible study in the book of Genesis. And Genesis 1-1, we said last week, begins with the first subject of the first sentence in the Bible. It's God. Yeah, not you. Sorry. It's a bit of a downer for many of us. But God is the first subject because God is the point of the Bible. If you want to know what the Bible is about, it's about God. And if you want to get to know God, then you need to get to know Jesus. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating in the context of this message. In many ways, Jesus is God. But flip the sentence around. God is Jesus. It's not just that Jesus is the divine, as a God-man, but that if you want to know God, then get to know Jesus. Or as Hebrews chapter 1 says, God has revealed himself in various times and in various ways, but in these last days, God has revealed himself through his Son. Or as John 1 says, the Word, the communication of God, the Word becomes flesh. Jesus is the embodiment of all the scriptures that have been revealed. So if you could take all that the Bible has said and cram all that it has said about God into one human body and say, I want to get to know this one human as my friend or my brother. This is what God has given to you and to us in Jesus Christ. This week I have been addicted to another song. This is a a common pattern in my family. Ask any of my kids or my wife and I get stuck on a song and I just keep playing it over and over again. This week the song is Yet Not I But Christ In Me. Yet Not I But Through Christ In Me. The first line of the song is one that I am still meditating on. It says, what gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. There is no more for heaven now to give. And so I paused the song and I told my children, what better gift could God give to us than Jesus? What do you want now more than what God has already given you in Jesus Christ. Or as Romans 8 says, if God has not withheld his son, then how will he not also graciously give us all things? Ah, yes, 
May your soul be fed on the reality that God cannot improve upon the gift that he already has given. There's nothing more to give. This is it. And we shouldn't be sitting around waiting and hoping for something better to come into our lives when we already have the best thing. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing that you could possibly dream of, want, or imagine has already been given to you in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4, his divine power has granted to us all things to live a life of godliness through the knowledge of him. By knowing Jesus, you have everything you need to live a life of godliness. So I suggest that the whole Bible is about Jesus. And that is good news if you want all that you need for life and godliness. Every spiritual blessing, everything that you need to maintain faith and trust and hope and grow in this weary, difficult, challenging thing we called life. All that happened to Jesus was so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Does your heart, does your mind, your soul, and all of your strength love the gift that God has given to us in Christ? Because this, my friends, is what we're going to keep talking about every single week, if not every day. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now in the name of your son, Jesus, and we want to thank you for the gift of him because it's the gift of you. If we have seen him, we have seen you as the Father. We thank you for that gift being poured out into our hearts through the Spirit so we can know the beauty and the depth of your love. And we want to thank you that you have not hidden away out in the dark stretches of the galaxy somewhere where we can't find you, but rather you came near, you came in, you came down, and you met us where we were at, as humans in general and as humans individually. We want to thank you that we were lost. We were running our hell-bound race, indifferent to what that might be. But in your grace, you arrested us and you sought us. And now everything that we have is summed up in Jesus Christ. In the same way that the whole scriptures are summed up in Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you. Hallelujah. All we have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.